Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, I'm joined by B. Adam Richardson, a veteran detective who runs a blog called the Writers Detective Bureau and has some side hustle as a technical advisor for writers who want to incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I am a little bit concerned, you know, with our um, a little bit similar enterprises here that uh, you'll end up taking my job uh, if this goes too well. So I'd, I'd appreciate it if you could, uh, you know, defer to my expertise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, how did you get started with uh, the technical advising business? What, what made you want to want to put that together? Well, I actually work in Southern California and around here you can't swing a well, I don't want to say a dead bat, but you, know, you can't <laughs> swing a bag or a bowling ball around without hitting somebody in the entertainment industry. And so uh, my wife and I were wine tasting with a bunch of friends that uh, you know, are in the um, show business, showbiz mm-hmm. industry, and one of them was a screenwriter. And so after a full day of wine tasting, um, we ended up, or he asked me, the, the screenwriter asked me a, a technical question about a script he was working on. Um, and of course, you know, it was a no brainer for me to be able to answer the simple question. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the following day because of the wine. I didn't have the immediate aha moment, but <laughs> the following day was when I realized, you know what, there might be some screenwriters out there that would appreciate the help. So that's where I got started. And then um, through learning about storytelling and really kind of learning the craft, I then started um, meeting uh, authors, so self-published authors as well as traditionally published authors, and that was really where it kind of kicked off as far as um, rather than just limiting it to Hollywood, but also doing it for the greater writing public. So how did how did you start getting word out about your business initially? Was it just through this one contact? Did you immediately put up a hang out a shingle somewhere, or, or were you kind of holed up in the woodshed putting all this well, together for a while? <laughs> Yeah, so it well, it feels like it was the woodshed. Uh, anytime, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody who starts out, whether you're a, a cop trying to help writers or a writer yourself, you're always starting out with zero followers, zero listeners, um, whatever it is. So I started by uh, actually, it was um, four years ago this week, I started my version of my blog at the time. Was called lawenforcementtechnicaladvisor.com, which was a mouthful and did not equal any kind of um, username I could get on any social media. But the uh, that was the start of it. I just started publishing blog posts, and then and I did that for a, um, for three years, and then last year I kind of transitioned um, into podcasting, just because it's a much easier way to reach more people and. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of our time, especially if you're writing, so much of your time spent in front of a computer rather than yes. reading blogs is going to be spent writing. Um, so I figured the podcast was the easier way to kind of make use of a writer's downtime when they aren't able to be writing. So it's uh, been going well in that regard as well. And then um, on the lawn for, or on the Hollywood side of things, it was uh, pretty much word of mouth. Um, the writers, like the working writers are pretty 
tight knit community. Yes. Um, and it turned out that I did have some, unbeknownst to me, I had some friends <laughs> that uh, were actually um, pretty well established in their careers. Um, but, you know, just established friends that had partners yes. that were working in the industry. So, yeah, a little bit word of mouth and a little bit of uh, consistently showing up through whatever it is, blog, blogging or podcasting um, or know coming on uh, other people's podcasts to help them out uh as well well i appreciate you making time for us that was uh, i guess it's probably been about um nine months maybe a year ago when uh when i found your uh, your podcast the detective writers bureau and uh, i really enjoy what you're doing over there it's actually even been helpful for me as a as a writer you know no one no one of us is an expert in everything and i really appreciate the way that you put that um you know, your, your emails and the, the podcast together as a, a true resource. Um, it's been incredibly helpful and, uh, and I've been pleasantly surprised when it shows up that there's almost something in every one of them that I can use and, uh, that I didn't know before. It's, it's pretty fantastic. I appreciate that. Yeah. So with the email, I mean, we all get hit with tons of emails that are all about, you know, putting you into a sales funnel or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, I mean, growing my email list has been also a slow process, but it's one of those things where, you know, I don't hit you with a ton of stuff. I'm at the point now that I'm doing weekly podcasts, I send out one email a month and all it is, is just curated links of things that I think writers are going to find interesting. And that could be, um, and, and I'm not a writing coach, so I'm not trying to, you know, give you advice on how to tell your story, but give you links to things like uh, that we find um, through the course of our regular work life and law enforcement that I think might also relate to writers. Obviously, it's not any kind of like for official use only stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, the things that are available to the public that are, you know, white papers um, or mm-hmm. even things like annual reports, stuff where, um, where even a writer that's doing proper research on the surface may not realize the value of the thing that we're, that I'm pointing out. So for, um, you know, teaching people how to look at city council minutes, like who would really find that interesting? Well, if you're mm-hmm. looking at how a city goes about purchasing firearms for the entire agency or which specific firearms, um, agency may use or how they're dealing with budgets or seeing what kind of crimes or where they're occurring those things show up in you know pdfs that these police departments that you may use as your avatar agency when you're kind of writing with us you know with a a fictional agency but i i urge people to kind of pick a real one and use that as an avatar or a model for the one that you're writing about Um, but you can get a lot of insight based on the statistics and the Mm -hmm. publicly available information if you know where to look for it yeah, and that's some of the things that have most impressed me with your emails. Um, it, it's a, been a mix, in in my opinion so far, of of information that's, you know, really kind of, some of it's shiny and sexy, and a lot of it, though, wears overalls and represents, you know, kind of the work and the diligence and the research that really goes into a well-crafted book. And you get all this as, you know, a, a, a member of your list. I, I get all this, you know, once a month without the massive sales pitch to give you $150 a month or whatever the going rate is for, you know, ever all the other technical advisors. And I really, as an author, I really appreciate that. It, it doesn't feel salesy to me, um, which makes me open it all the much faster. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really not, I don't really have anything to sell. I mean, cops, make <laughs> salesmen, 
So, <laughs> um, I mean, the reality is that, you know, I, I'm totally happy to take the money of Hollywood if they have it in their budget for some sort of technical advising. But mm-hmm. um, I have a very hard time charging self-published writers that in reality, you know, it's, you're going to have to work through several books to establish your brand and it's going, you're going to be in the red the majority of the time until you get to that spot. So I have a very hard time charging for advice when the amount that I would charge is less than you may make on your first or second book. So I try to provide as much, you know, free value as possible. And then, you know, I'm playing the long game. If 10 years from now you are the next Michael Connelly and you're, you know, running a show on one of the streaming services or on network television, maybe you'll remember me and and hire me as your technical advisor in Hollywood. But uh, in the meantime, you know, I'm just doing that because I really love helping. And then, you know, there's a bigger why to the reason why I'm doing this. If you are to watch anything on the news about law enforcement, obviously this is a really tough time for career. Um, And honestly, the only reason I became a cop was too many episodes of Chips and Miami Vice. (laughs) So we're about the same age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I caught the very tail end out of 12, but uh, but it was, I mean, so I was really brought up on, you know, TV cop shows, but in reality it is, it is story is the reason why I got into law enforcement. Cause I really like the idea of being the hero of being the good guy of the guy who did the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so it really informed the way I grew up, but more importantly, storytellers are the ones perpetuating. I don't want to say it's a myth because it is true, but they're the only ones still telling the story that the cops are the good guys right now in Hollywood too often you'll have the cop who's the good guy, but then your antagonist is also a cop. So there's yeah. this misperception of there's so many bad apples out there. And so really helping writers tell a great story. I mean, that is the mm-hmm. only thing that's left really um, as far as any kind of good PR for law enforcement. So I want to help every writer that I can help keep this, you know, concept of the hero's journey alive where the cops are still the heroes. Yeah, you know, on that, on that note, you know, the, when you do look at the majority of, of film and representation, right, it's, if there's a good cop, he's an anomaly. And in my experience, that's the exact opposite of what it really is. The There are certainly guys wearing a badge who shouldn't have one for a variety of reasons, but the bad apples that portray the, or the, that act like Hollywood portrays us, those guys are the excessively rare exception um but you know that that's that doesn't make for good film and tv yep that's absolutely true but it's what the viewer is expecting because it's what they're seeing in the news media because and the yep. reason they're seeing it in the news media is because it gets viewers it gets mm-hmm. ratings yeah um, which sells advertising dollars and right you know. yeah you know it, it's still despite all of this you know over the last uh, change really over the last like five, 10 years. It still is really encouraging to me though, that, um, that people still trust us to solve their problems and that all of this perception and all the, the publicity, I think most folks, I think they still have to recognize that it is fictionalized, um, based on, you know, the day-to-day interactions of, you know, my colleagues that, um, they're still going out and answering calls. They're still, you know, people getting still consenting to have them come in their house, still, you know, telling them their deepest, darkest secrets on their first meet um, and not just immediately devolving into vigilante justice. So I, I do optimistically 
hold out that, uh, that it's a, a minority opinion, but you know, it's still incredibly disheartening to see it. Now, you're absolutely right about that. The, the thing that I'm most concerned about is the fact that our politicians, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, are ones that are buying into the media myth um, yes. more than anybody else. And right now in mm -hmm. California, we're going through this big battle as to, we're essentially redefining our use of force law yes. uh, in California compared, which is going to be different than anybody else in the United States. Because right now, all of ours is based on the case law under Graham versus Connor. Mm -hmm. And it is people that, you know, the man in the arena, the old uh, Teddy yes. Roosevelt quote, they're, not, you know, these are the people that are in the audience that are making this decision without the um, benefit of understanding what it's truly like. We have come to this point, you know, prior to the, to this new bill that's trying to address that. Um, I mean, the, the courts have very reasonably over, you know, many, many decades come to a pretty reasonable understanding of how to deal with these kind of cases. And there's yes. always some sort of tragedy, but it's not without some sort of recourse. So mm -hmm. we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater right now. And I really believe this is being driven based off of political polls and what these elected officials think their constituents want versus what is actually going to be the right thing. Yeah. And that, that upcoming law for the benefit of the audience, um, the, my understanding as someone outside California um, is that this is going to severely limit the circumstances under which law enforcement can act with lethal force to defend themselves or another person. And that's, to me, a very dangerous thing because right now cops are already very hesitant to use deadly force and oftentimes in circumstances, even in my own experience and those of my partners, when we've been presented with opportunities that would justify deadly force, we tend not to use it. Um, is that effectively what's your understanding of this, this law that's being pushed? Absolutely. Yeah. So my, I mean, the latest, I think yesterday um, was that the, so we have two competing versions um, of laws that are going in where um, one of them has been drafted by um, politicians and the other one has been suggested by police unions. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of thought that there would be a consensus, like a meet in the middle. Yeah. And what ended up happening was the police union, you know, sponsored version got completely thrown out. So there's still going to be negotiations as to what is going to come of this. But the real, the basis, the very nuts and bolts of this is that the law currently says that whether an action um, is justifiable or not is based on whether the action taken was reasonable based upon the circumstances known at the time by any other, uh, you know, judged along the same training and experience as any other reasonable officer in that situation. So if I'm answering a 911 call where it's been reported that this guy had a gun and he went for his waistband and I thought he had a gun, is it reasonable for me to have used some sort of lethal force? And so that is the scenario that keeps being played over and over again. And then at mm -hmm. the end, you know, there's a huge issue of was race a matter of it? You know, mm -hmm. uh, was the person actually armed or not? And so the change in the law that's being proposed is that rather than whether the force was reasonable, it's whether it was necessary. So, oh my God. 
Yeah, so it opens the door to Monday morning quarterbacking of he didn't have a gun, so therefore you used an unnecessary level yes. of force. And it's like, well, that's not based on, you know, that's based on the facts after the fact, not what I knew yes. at the time. So it's going to be a huge difference. And my biggest fear is that when you are trying to decide whether or not to defend yourself, whether to, you know, clear leather, as we say, of, of drawing mm -hmm. your weapon, um, the last thing you want is to have your life in bars flash before your eyes because you're afraid that you're going to be prosecuted for what you're about to do. So we're going to end up seeing one of two things, either more dead cops because they refuse to use any kind of lethal force for fear of any kind of litigation or retaliation, or worse, cops that stand around with hands in their pockets and refuse to do anything, which we've already seen in yes. Illinois where you have you know, violent crime skyrocketing because the cops, the whole Ferguson effect are just like, yes. why, you know, if you type in YouTube, good cop, you're going to see a whole bunch of videos of cops not enforcing the law, which is their job, their law enforcement. But he gave me a warning. He gave me a break. Now there's certainly times to employ letter of the law versus spirit of the law. That's that mm -hmm. officer discretion thing. But yes. we're getting to a point where the good cop is the cop that technically is not enforcing the law. And that's a very dangerous place to be when it comes to society. It is. And, you know, on, on a similar note, uh, you talk about the, this being pushed by, you know, the, the politicians who are placating the, the masses as they perceive them to be. You know, I, I would also offer that in my experience with law enforcement administrations, that some of the folks, I, to, to me, there's about a 50-50 split between leaders and managers rising through the ranks within a police organization. And I don't want to say all the time, but of the managers, it seems to me that there is a, uh, a significant portion of them who got to their position by not taking the risk of making a decision, of not taking action when action was necessary. But action oftentimes is dealt with much more harshly than inaction. And so the greater risk is in trying to do the right thing where, you know, maybe we do nothing and no bad comes of it. We'll wait and see. And it's a dangerous mentality for us to promote within our organizations, within our culture. Um, but this law seems like it's certainly going to, to have that chilling effect that journalists worry about with their sources. Um, but, you know, when we chill law enforcement's uh, desire and willingness to put ourselves in jeopardy for people we don't know, um, our entire society changes and we hand it over to the street level thugs. That's entirely true. And, and it's not to say that there shouldn't be more inroads when it comes to um, community, community oriented policing and including, mm -hmm. you know, people of various backgrounds and uh, yes. ethnic, ethnicities, religious beliefs, gender, you know, affiliation. Um, I mean, it, I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm answering this from a position of privilege. Um, I think we have made, at least in California, we've made great strides in, you know, hiring people that really represent the communities that they're policing. Um, but it is such a dangerous game to play where you are going to throw the baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. and make these, you know, huge sweeping changes without putting any forethought into the actual end result. Um, yeah, it, it's just blows my mind, um, as to what we're looking at here with this. Now, 
I guess getting uh, off of my 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 soapbox for a minute is I I could I as a professional you know you can complain or I I speaking for myself <laughs> as a professional I can complain with the best of them um, you know the things we hate right or the change in the way things are um, but to I guess get a show back on a little bit of track what <laughs> what are what are some of your fictional pet peeves in in law enforcement that the way it's portrayed. Um, other than the the anomaly we talked about, that kind of must have helped inspire you, or that you find really easy to to fix these scripts and these uh, these works when people are getting them wrong. Well, yeah. So the well, there's the whether you're working on a manuscript for a novel or a script for either a movie or a TV, they all have various different plots, and it really has to do with the format of the story itself. Um, there are a few things that a lot of writers kind of fall into because it really helps their story mm -hmm. um, tell the story, but it's not realistic that just kind of pull my hair out. So one of them, this relates kind of to what we were just talking about was the angry captain or the angry lieutenant yes. that's coming <laughs> down, you know? So, I mean, the Peter principle is alive and well in law enforcement where you promote yes. to your level of incompetence. So there's plenty of that to go around. So I've never been called in to an office and told, you know, you need to close this case right now. I've always been you know, incorrectly so, able to follow the evidence where it goes to find the truth of the matter. And if it turns yes. out that we're not arresting anybody, so be it. We're just following the evidence. So that's mm -hmm. one trope is the angry boss because, you know, no one wants to come to work if you have an angry boss. Uh, the other is using the interrogation scene as a giant exp exposition by the protagonist to tell the, you know, they're saying it to the antagonist in the interview room, but they're using it is a way to kind of sum up everything in the book and prove that we got you. You know, that's yeah. not what happens in an interview room. In an interview room, you're, you need to understand the why of the detective mm -hmm. and the why of the bad guy. The reason why the bad guy would even agree to be in that interview with you without, you know, just saying, I want to talk to my lawyer. I don't want to talk to you. Get out. Yeah. So you to reasonably create that. You have to understand the why in the heads of both of those. Um, and then the other would be, and it kind of relates to it, um, is that your timeline is incredibly important because that mm -hmm. is the why of your protagonist. So if you're working a murder investigation, you're trying to lock in um, the story of the bad guy. We get lied to all day, every day. <laughs> yes. Like you pull over a car. Have you had anything to drink? Yes. Or, you know, no. Or yes. Yeah. Two, two beers. beers. Right? Yeah, it's always, always two, two beers. Right. So, I mean, it's like if I got pulled over and had three beers, I'm still going to say two beers. So it's a natural reaction, but we become yeah. BS detectors. Um, but when you're sitting in an interview room and you're looking at, you know, some sort of major crime being pinned against you, I don't care whether or not you're going to tell me the truth or not. Mm -hmm. What I want is you to put a story on record that I can then go back and attack by getting evidence to prove that you were lying to me. And that's something I can lay out to a jury. So I'm not there to say, we got this and we got this and we got this. And these are all the reasons why you're guilty. And then he just sits there with a smug look on his face. Like it happens in the 22 minute crime dramas that you see on, you know, major network TV. So yeah. those are some yeah. of the tropes. But then when it comes to the actual, um, the things that I encounter that are kind of, different based on script type will have to do with where, like when things happen. And um, so like if I'm working on, on something where like the, I'm working with a, a writing team that's working on a pilot for a show, 
the whole case is going to take place across a whole number of episodes and we need the pilot to end on this specific, you know, part of the investigation, which is still pretty early on. It still leaves a lot of stuff to try to plug into that first episode. So whether it actually occurs at that spot or we just pay it a little bit of lip service, that's the kind of thing that I will work with the television writing rooms on. Uh, what is, so from the time that you first applied to become a cop, went through the arduous process of application, got in the academy, and then eventually now where you're sitting as a, as a veteran investigator, what have been some of the biggest surprises to you over that, what your anticipated experience was and, and what reality was? Well, I, I had a pretty good understanding as far as what I was getting myself into. I had been an explorer before, you know, when I was a teenager, and then I became a reserve back when California had okay. a um, less stringent reserve officer. Uh, I came in as a level two reserve, which meant that I, essentially you go to some night school. It's not like a full police academy like it is now. And then you're qualified to permanently ride with a full-time officer. So you're volunteer, but you're wearing the exact same uniform. You're carrying a badge, you're carrying a gun. And that was when I was 21 years old. Um, mm -hmm. It took me a full year to go through the hiring process to become a reserve because when you're a reserve, you're like the bottom of the importance list because they're, the department is in the process of trying to hire actual employees, not just volunteers. So you're always kind of the bottom of the importance pile when it comes to personnel. Sure. Um, once I was with the department for six months, we got a grant, uh, a cops grant that paid for a whole slew of positions where um, I was able to test and then get to a police academy um, in a pretty short amount of time. And so, you know, it was a year to get hired as a reserve, and then it was a matter of like two or three months to go through the exact same process all over again. <laughs> Later. Yes, uh, probably the you know, same, same packet. Yeah, yep, exactly. So it, and it was literally an updated background packet. I went right back to the same polygraph examiner. I went right back to the same um, psychologist who did the psych exam. Um, so it was a much faster process. But then again, um, you know, for us, it was a six month academy. Um, and then I think it was uh, slated to be 16 weeks on field training. Um, but because of my prior time as a reserve, I was actually let off of training earlier because yeah, I had a little more experience. Oh, what, what was your first shift like when you finally got that car to yourself? What was the first thing you did? Do you remember? Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, well, so my very first shift with my training officer was actually the night of Christmas. And right out of the gate, we ended up with a guy high on meth that was in someone else's um, shower. And <laughs> the time I showed up, we were like the sixth you know, car to get there. And it was this huge dog pile. Um, and he kicked out the window of the car and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, oh man, what have I got myself into? Um, but then, yeah, so once I was off of training, my very first shift, I literally got in the car, went out on my very, uh, like I just rolled up on a car that was in a, uh, a known like drug using site and yeah. ran the plate and ran the dude one of those shakedown what are you doing here kind of things and mm -hmm. or being in a no parking zone and he ended up having a warrant so within 20 minutes of clearing briefing i was already on my way to jail with my first hook so it, it was <laughs> it yeah. was it was pretty pretty quick um yeah so i guess so going back to the previous question as far as one of the things that surprised me was one of the reasons I got into law enforcement, I mean, obviously as a little kid, I was interested in it, but then um, 
growing up in high school, I had, I was the guy who had a ton of friends that were girls, but never a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of those really good friends of mine um, went through a pretty serious sexual assault um, oh, wow. situation. And as the friend, I felt completely mm-hmm. helpless. You know, I was there and I was being supportive and I was amazed at the job that the police department did um, at, you know, essentially running the investigation, arresting the guy and, you know, going through trial and sending this guy to prison for many, many years. Good. So that was where, yeah. So as like, as a teenager looking toward adulthood, this was where I was like, ooh, this is what I want to do. So then when I made it into major crimes and was working sexual assault, robbery, and homicide, it really drained me emotionally. And so um, that was a surprise, was I thought I was totally suited for it. And it Mm -hmm. was like, I could not do enough for the victims. And it was just, I was coming home at the end of the day, just absolutely emotionally spent. So then I went, I was able to um, test for the narcotics unit because Hey, who doesn't want to, you know, yeah. wear a suit and tie to work and you know, go do the fun stuff and grow your beard out and all that stuff. So, uh, the, going the to mystery. narcotics. Yeah. yeah get it, the mystery order for beard and tats, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was night and day difference. And mm-hmm. that was where I started learning about the uh, proactive side of law enforcement. So when you're working patrol, you're, you work the first half of any kind of serious investigation. You're the one who responds to the 911 call and you work it up to the point where, you know, you can't feasibly do all of the follow-up, and that's where the suit and tie detectives come in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you start working narcotics or you work vice or Intel, that's where you start working proactive investigations where you're out there making stuff happen rather than picking up the pieces. And I really love that. And so I spent over a decade in our special operations. Well, yeah, I, I really thought I, I, I guess have some, some kind of parallel or analogous experience. Um, I thought that I would really enjoy working sex crimes. Um, because the, the suspect, the guy that you're trying to put away is such a fucking dirt bag, right? That this, this has to be the most satisfying investigation. At the end of this, you get to put this really heinous person away and make sure that society is protected from them. And I think I, I never worked over, uh, over in sex crimes as, as a detective, but the, the sex assault cases and some of the, the, the kitty crimes cases that I caught on patrol before I went into investigations, I had to watch a, a forensic interview of an eight-year-old victim um, and her intimate description of what this guy had done to her immediately washed me of any desire to work there as a full-time investigator like it's appalling. Um, and I have no idea how those guys go home at night and carry on any kind of normal relationship. It definitely messes with your head. Um, I had similar experiences. So when we're like, you're, you're talking about, um, we would have specially trained child forensic psychologists Mm -hmm. doing these interviews that are in a, you know, a controlled environment where there's toys and there's stuffed animals and, you know, there's the kind of, like what you see in television where there's the one way, you know, mirror, I'm on the other side of it where I am listening to the interview. I'm watching it. We're video recording it. And then there's a phone where I can pick it up. And then there's the light blinks inside the room where the psychologist can pick it up and I can relay a question that I need answered. Um, we obviously go through a big briefing as to what 
the goal of the interview is in the first place. But I had cases like that where you have the four-year-old who, you know, his um, mom's new boyfriend was doing stuff mm -hmm. to him. Um, so yeah, that is absolutely emotionally heart-wrenching. And then at the same time, when you're sitting across from a child molester, um, it, it, uh, the best days were the ones where I get them to open up to me and I get to yes. send them away to prison for six, 700 years because they do. <laughs> I mean, yes. that's really what the, yeah. the judgment yeah. is because yeah. they get their, every count has its own length and they run those sentences. They're all um, consecutive. Consecutively yeah. instead of concurrently. But the key to that though, um, which also kind of plays tugs on your heartstrings is that to get a child molester who does this um, to open up to you, the, the best way to do it is to not be judgmental. I mean, every one of us yeah. wants to reach across the table and just strangle the guy. But yeah. if you come across as the one guy in the world that understands that is not passing judgment and it's like, you know what, the last guy that sat in the chair was a murderer and you didn't murder anybody, you know, and it's just like, tell me what happened. You know, what, what did you feel? You know, what, what, you, you, you open up the, the conversation and you show some understanding and all of a sudden you are the person that they confess all of their sins to. And, you know, as long as you don't show that you're passing judgment, they're going to open up, um, which is great because it's all being audio recorded. And then you either play it to the jury or their uh, attorney is going to be asked for a plea deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it becomes really hard for them to say that, uh, you know, you coerced the guy or you, um, you know, held his feet to a fire until he confessed or, you know, threatened him with running through a wood chipper when, you know, you're just sitting there calmly talking as if, you know, discussing the plans for next Saturday's lemonade party. You know, it's, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. You just, you just want to hear his side of the story, but yeah. you know, and I have questions for you and I'm sure you have questions for me, but we'll talk to that after I have to redo these rights real quick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. You know, read that yeah. out, cut that out of the way, make sure it's clear so that way the jury gets to hear that you weren't messing around with any of the Miranda stuff. And yeah, you're golden. Yeah, that was on, on that note, that, that's been one of the biggest surprises uh, for me is, you know, I grew up in, uh, in a pretty, pretty libertarian household. Um, you know, my, my family was always very cop friendly. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure that you know, if they, if cops had ever knocked on the door for any reason, my parents would have, you know, just automatically welcomed him in and then asked what was going on. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, at the same time, you know, my, my dad was always very, you know, um, you know, what's, what is their, what are their rights? What are you, what are you giving up in this whole thing? Right. So, um, I've always been really amazed at how many people are willing to talk to us, how many people are willing to let us into their house, um, on, on just a purely consent basis. And, I think, you know, my, my time working dope, um, I only have memory really of two guys who told us to pound sand at the door. Almost everybody says yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And addicts themselves are usually very, um, surprisingly truthful. So yeah, yeah. if they're, if they're going to be telling you no pound sand, then they're less likely an addict and much more likely a trafficker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when, um, with all the work that you've put in on obviously learning something about the, the craft of writing and, and trying to be, you know, I imagine a more efficient, effective and helpful technical advisor. Has this brought you to the point that you have your own writing projects in the works? Uh, I do, but it's as a nonfiction desk reference. Um, so I have a book that will be coming out later this year um, to essentially continue this on. I have intentionally not 
written fiction um, or come up with any, well, that's not to say that I don't have story ideas, but sure. uh, because so much of the stuff that I do on the um, Hollywood side involves non-disclosure agreements and sure. stuff like that, I just, to keep it all above board and so that way it doesn't end up being... Nobody ever questions it. Yeah, exactly. I just, for the most part, at least while I'm still employed, um, like actively working in law enforcement, I'll stay away from doing any kind of fiction writing myself. Um, I do have a few story ideas in my head, but uh, they're either not about law enforcement or if they are, it's something I'm going to pitch uh, as my own thing in Hollywood uh, before I <laughs> go down the route of trying to publish it myself. But that'll be uh, at least five years away because I got about five years left. Now, aside from uh, from Miami Vice and some of the uh, the cop shows that you and I grew up on, uh, who are your current favorite fictional investigators in books, TV, and film? Oh, uh, my absolute favorite is still The Wire on HBO. Um, yeah. I actually watched season one of The Wire on a computer in a wire room on a homicide wire. <laughs> While we were, you know, we had like six phone lines, and so it was very meta, you know, watching The Wire in a wire room, um, but. But that was a great show for a variety of reasons. One was that um, one of the co-creators is a former Baltimore narcotics cop. The other one was a um, crime writer for the Baltimore Sun. Um, and a lot of the lessons they learned in real life translated to the show. And so one of the things that every narc learns at some point, because we're so used to just arresting you know, criminals for doing crimes mm -hmm. is it's very different when you're investigating a business. And so yes. there's two sides to every transaction. There's the drug side, but then there's also the money side. And so there's an episode where they stop a car. They think it's a load car and it turns out to be, it is a load car, but it's full of money. And that's kind of an aha moment that every narc that I've worked with that I trained went through the same kind of learning process. So that was one, one of my favorite shows. And I still, you know, see those other actors pop up in other shows and I'm always like, Ooh, I got to watch that show. Cause it's going to be good. Um, the other one that I'm really enjoying right now is Bosch. Yes. Yeah. I have read all of the Bosch books and I really think that Michael Connelly is a master of telling the police procedural, mm -hmm. um, stories. And so, I mean, everyone, he's very popular obviously, but if you're looking, at writing in this genre, he's a great one to go back and reread and look at it from a more objective angle of like that, the storytelling lessons. Yep. You know, why did he include this scene? What, what did this scene accomplish? How did it drive the story forward? Um, because especially newer writers have a tendency to want to include these scenes, but they don't really do anything other than it just, you know, it's one of the darlings that they're afraid to kill off as yes. Stephen King says. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're going to have that scene where they're talking in the car, um, there needs to be a reason why that scene is in there because it's conveying some sort of information that's pushing the story forward. Now, with uh, I asked this last question, everybody that comes on the podcast, I don't want to don't want to make an exception just because you know you're a fellow <laughs> cop, but God forbid it should happen, Adam. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator would you want working your case? Would it be Bosch? Would it be somebody else? You can pick anybody. Oh, that is a good question. I would love to see Bunk from The Wire partner with Bosch. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. That is actually, we've had a, a couple. Uh, you know what? I might have to add Lester Freeman in there because Lester, actually, if I had to do one, it would be Lester Freeman from The Wire. Uh, he was the, the quiet one that was the, the you know, he, he did the little like um, painting of the dollhouse toys mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but he was the sleeper. He was 
the brilliant guy that got stuff done and would not. He wasn't, you know, the break all the rules maverick. That's another trope that I cannot yeah. stand. Yeah. But um, yeah, he was definitely the thinker and the and the sleeper. But you know, there's a lot more to that character underneath the story. But he would not let sleeping dogs lie. So yeah, any of those three really. So uh, Lester Freeman, Bunk Moreland, or Hieronymus Bosch. Well, you know, we've had a, a few uh, suggested task forces like this come up on, on the results of this question, but I think this is the most extensive so far. <laughs> <laughs> I love my TV cops. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where can fans, uh, writers, connect with you, um, find your technical advisement, find your email, and get, a, get hooked up with your service? Uh, well, the easiest way right now, if you're listening to this, would be to open up your podcast player and find the Writers Detective Bureau podcast, which is my weekly podcast that comes out every Friday. Um, as we're recording this, today is a release day, so I've got an episode coming out here in the next uh, hour or two. And then for the mailing list, where you get that monthly list of curated links that covers all sorts of white papers and procedural manuals or any kind of stories that may help with your character creation, that kind of stuff you can go to writersdetective.com and there will be a place for you to enter your email address. Fantastic. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time to join us today and I'm looking forward to, uh, to the, uh, the upcoming podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been veteran investigator B. Adam Richardson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.